pray. Father, we thank you for your word. The words of life come to us. Any of my words, Lord, that are not of you, truly may they fall to the ground and blow away. But may your word remain, and in us may it bear much fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again to you. This morning, we're going to be taking one week off from the sermon series on the book of Romans. And the reason being, every so often, I think it's important for us to give some attention to some special topics that are relevant to our current cultural moment, topics which have a real impact on the life of the church. And what I hope to do in moments like these is to offer more clarity on what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully in the face of a strong cultural influence. In all my sermons, but especially on days like today, my heart is to speak words of truth and yet in the way of love, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. I will be honest with you, however, from a pastoral perspective, these aren't always easy topics to preach on. They're usually so complex that a great deal of study and prayer and nuance is required. Additionally, they're often topics which have the potential to create tension. I love tension. <laughs> Do you love tension? We are quite reactionary creatures by nature. And I think that the polarization and the tribalization of our society has only made this worse. And so it's a difficult thing to address a controversial topic in such a way that people can hear it without putting up their fists or without running for the door. And yet, I have confidence that the majority of you are not that way. You love God's Word. You want Scripture to shape your life and not your views to shape Scripture. And so even in moments where you disagree with me, and you, of course you're permitted to disagree, you've still demonstrated a willingness to give it thought, to search for truth, and to submit to the Lord. Even if I did not feel that way about you, nonetheless, I'm persuaded that these things need to be discussed in our congregation. Even if it's imperfectly, even if it's just for 30 minutes, even if some of you get upset. Now, I want to be clear, we've been running out of seats on Sunday mornings here in the sanctuary. This is not my attempt to make room for next week. That's not, really, not really what this is about. Uh, the real reason that I'm doing this is because Father Carl complained about having to preach on the doctrine of election last week, and so I feel like I need to compete. Okay, that's, that's the real reason. That's sarcasm. Just so you know, it's sarcasm. Okay, so what will I be preaching on today? I've come to realize with conviction in my own conscience that this is a word which I rarely mention. When I do mention it, I'm tempted to euphemize it. It's a word I used to euphemize as a kid, too. H-E double hockey sticks. You know the word. Um, as an adult now, I euphemize it in more grown-up ways but I'm still tempted to do so. In fact, in my six years here, I have not preached once on hell. If I'm really honest, I'm a bit embarrassed to say the word hell. I know I've at least said it in sermons past, but I've probably euphemized it in some way. For me, the, the embarrassment comes from two directions. First of all, I'm embarrassed by some of the church's historic abuses of this doctrine, and there are many. For me, personal experience, growing up in conservative evangelical environments, I was aware of preachers who were hyper-focused on the wrath of God. They screamed their sermons. 
And God's love was treated as if it was a peripheral matter, just something off to the side. Or worse, at Halloween, I was exposed to hell houses. Maybe you know about these. These are basically haunted houses full of fire and demons that were designed to scare the crap out of teenagers and to get them to pray the prayer. Ultimately, I don't think that these things, whether it's emotional manipulation or caricatures of what hell actually is, are all that helpful in reaching the lost. In fact, I think they do some serious damage. Second of all, I'm embarrassed about hell because I, like you, have been shaped by our society's sensibilities. Our sensibilities. I'm told that to believe in hell is unloving. It's intolerant, maybe even bigoted. I'm told that to believe in hell will turn people off. They just won't listen. It's counterproductive. I'm told that hell was something manufactured in the Middle Ages, and it was just used to wield power over people who faced plague and war and famine. I'm told Jesus didn't teach about hell, and he would never send people there. Besides my embarrassment of hell, I also just don't like it. If you like it, there's a problem with you. There's a problem with you. I don't want to think about myself being there, let alone the people that I love. I, I don't want to think about the strangers that I sit next to on the airplane or my non-Christian friends or the unreached peoples groups of the world. I don't want to think about them being there. In fact, I don't even want to think about my enemies being there. I wouldn't wish that on them either. Here's what I believe more firmly than that, though. God's word, God's character, and God's plan for the world are not dependent upon what I like or on what I find palatable. As the crowds listened to Jesus' teaching, eventually they were going to hear things they didn't like. It happened. And on one of those occasions, as people were leaving because they didn't like what Jesus had to say, in John chapter 6, Jesus asked his disciples, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Some of you have heard way too much teaching on hell. Way too much. Enough for a lifetime. Some of you, not enough. Others of you have been wounded by the church and perhaps you're deconstructing your faith a bit wondering what's true and what's not, and maybe hell is a part of that for you. Regardless of where you are this morning, I have compassion for you. I know this is a hard issue. Regardless of where you are, what I know is that Jesus has the words of life and only him. Go searching for another who has the words because you won't find it. To embrace Jesus, though, means we embrace what Jesus teaches, even the hard things, because ultimately they're true. The truth is, Scripture does offer us a measure of sure theology about what hell is. Now, its description is not nearly as detailed or perhaps as scientifically observable as many people make it out to be. It's not. And yet, at the same time, it's not as if there's not biblical consensus about what God would have us know. There is. In the Old Testament, there isn't much teaching on hell itself. What we do find is the ever-present theme that sin against God deserves his righteous judgment, and yet that God is making a way for his people to be saved and to experience his blessing. Therefore, the Old Testament's consensus is that those who are faithful to God will experience God's steadfast love in this age and the age to come, 
And the wicked, those who reject God, those who hate God, will experience God's wrath in both of those ages as well. This theme in the Old Testament is not something that's just taught. It is, but it's also enacted in the story of Israel, in the story of the Old Covenant. They lived it out. When they were faithful, they saw God's love. And when they weren't, they didn't. This understanding of of God and the covenant was something embedded in Jewish theology, which means that it was the theological worldview of Jesus and his apostles as first century Jews. This is the way they understood things. The focus of our attention is not on the Old Testament, but on the New Testament, through which our understanding of hell is expanded, just as it is with the rest of our theology. This is how it works. God's progressive revelation unfolds over the course of redemptive history, helping us to understand more about who he is and more about what he's doing in the world. Well, one of the best things that I could do this morning, I wish there was time, but it would take hours, I think, would be to walk through all of the passages in the New Testament that describe hell or that talk about God's judgment. There's simply just not enough time for that today, which I think makes an important point. There is a lot of biblical material about this doctrine. Those who try and make it out as something that's just few and far between in the pages of Scripture, I don't think they've honestly taken a look. If you'd like to take a list of all the kind of the New Testament content about hell, I have prepared a handout. It's going to be on the welcome table as you leave. I didn't give that to you this morning here in this place because I think it's just going to be a distraction to you. But if you'd like to apply study and see the places that is talked about in the New Testament, you'll find that handout on the way out. We can't look at all those things today, of course, but we are going to look at a few passages. We're going to start with Jesus' words. We're going to start right in the Gospels. There are nine passages where Jesus explicitly uses the word hell. And he uses that word 12 times in those nine passages. Now, the Greek word that Jesus is using for hell is the word Gehenna. Maybe you've heard that before, Gehenna. And that's actually a translation of a Hebrew phrase, Gai ben Hinnom, which means the valley of the son of Hinnom. The valley of the son of Hinnom. That's actually a place. It's a geographical place right outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's a notable place in Scripture, especially in the book of Jeremiah. See, Jeremiah prophesied against Judah in the midst of their rampant idolatry and just pure evil. And if you don't think that's the case, one of the things that Jeremiah was condemning them for, God's people, was sacrificing their own children to pagan gods in the valley of the son of Anom. And essentially what Jeremiah told them was because of that detestable evil, unquestionable evil, no one would debate it. God was going to slaughter all of them in that same valley. That was the prophecy. So what happened over time is that the valley of the son of Enom became a symbol of God's coming future eschatological judgment on the wicked, on those who wouldn't repent. So Gehenna represents the end result for all those who wouldn't turn to God. So as we look at the gospel, as we see Jesus use the word Gehenna for hell, this is what he's referring to. It's that concept. Now, some will want to point out that in Jesus' day, Gehenna, right outside the city of Jerusalem, had become a garbage dump for the city. They had to do something with their trash. Um, What these people will suggest is that whenever Jesus mentions Gehenna, he's actually not referring to our traditional understanding of hell. He's talking about the garbage dump. The problem is that there's no biblical evidence for that view at all. And the first historical mention of Gehenna as a garbage dump is in 1200 A.D., 
1,200 years after Jesus is the first time anyone ever said in the historical record, Gehenna is a dump. Even if it's true that Gehenna was a garbage dump at that time, what is exceedingly more true is that Gehenna represents, namely God's judgment, what Gehenna represents, well precedes that dump. It was a prophetic place of judgment. And as Jesus teaches about Gehenna, there's really no honest doubt that he understands it with that original and prophetic meaning. If Gehenna really did become a garbage dump at the time of Jesus or afterwards, I think it's obvious because what better place to throw your trash than the place of prophetic judgment on evil? So, with that said, what do we hear Jesus say about Gehenna, about hell? Let me read some of Jesus' teaching this morning. I've selected three out of the nine passages in which Jesus explicitly mentions hell. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48, Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. In addition to the passages where Jesus explicitly says the word hell, there are many other places where Jesus talks about judgment. He's implying this theology of hell. These include in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've seen, in many of his parables. A great deal of them actually have to do with judgment. Through many of his miracles, even the one that we read about today, involves judgment. And even in what are perhaps the most famous of Jesus' words, in John chapter 3, where we find John chapter 3, 16, we're going to read verse 16, 17, 18, and 36. It says, For God so loved the world, Jesus speaking, that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, the apostles offer a theology that is consistent with Jesus' theology in the Gospels. When it comes to hell, when it comes to the final judgment, whether that's in 2 Corinthians, whether that's in Philippians, or 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Hebrew, James, 2 Peter, Jude, or Revelation, you'll see those things listed on the handout there. In fact, part of the reason I decided to speak about hell today in the midst of the series on Romans was because God's judgment is such a prominent feature in that book. We've heard it in some of the passages that we've discussed already, but take for, take for example a passage we didn't cover, Romans chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, which says this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. If I were to give a simple description of hell based upon the breadth of Scripture, here's what I would say. Hell is the eternal experience of God's judgment upon all unredeemed evil. Hell is the eternal experience of God's judgment upon all unredeemed evil. When we look at the doctrine of hell, I think it's easy for us to have two reactions. And I think both of them are out of our fleshly nature. The first fleshly response is to offer some theological euphemism. We euphemize it. The second is to offer moral judgmentalism. Moral judgmentalism. We're going to start with the theological euphemisms. We know that God is love. Scripture abounds with places that talk about God's love. 1 John chapter 4 says God is love. If God is love, then it doesn't seem right. It doesn't make sense to us that he would condemn people to hell. That doesn't seem loving at all. If we follow that line of reasoning, what happens, I think, is we end up offering some solutions for the apparent contradiction. We clean up God's image a bit. The first euphemism is to say something like this, hell isn't under God's control. It's not really under God's control. Now, I've never heard anyone say that, but I've seen illustrations that suggest that. It's partially where we get the Looney Tunes caricature of hell, where the devil and his demons are the ones running things, and they're so happy to torture people for forever. That's a caricature. Um, with this explanation, though, I think what happens is we let God off the hook. God's not actually responsible for hell. People send themselves to hell because they do more evil things than good things. And then Satan oversees their punishment. God's not really culpable in this whole thing. The problem with this is that hell is absolutely within the scope of God's sovereignty. It's not treated as anything else. While God's loving presence is separate from hell, it's a mistake to say that God is completely separate from hell because his judgment is there. And that's all there is. Satan and the spiritual powers of wickedness are suffering that punishment. They're not in charge. The second euphemism is essentially this, that hell isn't really that bad. It's not really that bad. This is where we might want to mention the descriptions we find in Scripture about hell, whether it's fire or darkness or worms or gnashing of teeth or weeping. We want to say that these things aren't literal, that they're just metaphor. And in doing that, what we feel is that we can downplay how terrible God's judgment will actually be to experience. Now, I want you to hear this very clearly. I actually believe that it's true that hell is spoken of in Scripture with metaphor, that the images there aren't exactly literal. And the reason is because eternity, let alone hell and heaven, are not comprehensible to us. If you were going to try and describe something that's incomprehensible to another person in terms that they could understand, you would use metaphor. You would try to help them understand something they can't comprehend by giving them a comparison for something they can comprehend. That's what's happening in Scripture. When we hear that the Bible's descriptions of hell might be metaphorical, however, we might then wrongly assume that therefore hell isn't as bad as described. Or maybe it's not even real. As in, if the descriptions of hell aren't literal, then maybe hell itself isn't literal. The problem with this is that even if the Bible's descriptions of hell are metaphorical, and I think they are, 
it doesn't undermine what the Bible teaches hell is. Namely, that God's righteous judgment on evil is real. And that to be under that wrath is incomprehensibly painful to the body and soul. A third euphemism is that hell isn't eternal. It's not eternal. This is another way to soften hell's edges a bit. We admit that hell really is that bad, but at least it won't last forever. It's just a time, hopefully a short time. Theologically speaking, this view is called annihilationism. All things will be annihilated. Or conditionalism. It suggests that God will punish evil for a season, but then he will completely undo its existence. I tell you truthfully, this is something I I hope for. I, I wish were true. I just don't think the scripture teaches that. There are a few passages that appear to suggest that God's wrath won't last forever. However, there are more and clearer scriptures that speak of hell in eternal terms. I think this particular euphemism, although it's understandable, um, is the least damaging. I think it's probably the most innocent, annihilationism. The last theological euphemism, the one that I'm about to mention, I think is the most damaging to our souls and to the souls of others, and that is this, that hell isn't really for anyone in particular. It's not really for anyone in particular. The idea here is that what hell is and who it's for are ultimately, ultimately irrelevant because all God's people are going to be saved from it. All people. This idea is called Christian universalism. As there are many forms of Christian universalism, I don't want to strip it down and just overgeneralize today because there are many with each uh, their own interpretive reasoning. Some forms of Christian universalism, however, are brazenly unbiblical. They're unapologetically so. They dismiss Scripture as outdated or unreliable. That's as true of Protestant liberals as it is true of Mormons, Mormons who are not Christians, not only for their eschatology, but a whole host of other reasons. Yet there are forms of Christian universalism that do want to stay true to the Scriptures. They do want to hold on to Scripture. But typically what happens is a universalist theology is built around a few biblical texts, and they are held in isolation from the rest of Scripture. And the underlying belief is that God is too loving to let hell happen to anyone. He's too loving. And that Jesus' sacrificial death upon the cross is just too powerful for anyone not to be covered by it. Whether you believe him or not, whether you reject him or whether you accept him, everybody in the end gets saved. The problem is not that there aren't biblical texts that say things like, all people will be saved. There are. And texts that say, Christ died for the whole world. There are those texts. The issue is that what is meant by all people and meant by the whole world is not understood through the canon of Scripture. Rather, it's understood through the hermeneutical presupposition of universalism. It's eisegeted. It's read into the text. The New Testament does offer clarity that there are many of God's creatures, many, both human and angelic, who do not embrace the authority of Jesus Christ. And not embracing the authority of Jesus Christ means God's righteous judgment. Now, what these euphemisms for hell ultimately come down to, they ultimately come down to yours and my willingness or unwillingness to accept God on the terms that he's presented himself to us. All of us, whether we're inside the church or whether we're outside the church, we are all quite comfortable with God's revelation of himself as love. Who wouldn't be? 
We should be comfortable with that. It's wonderful news. This is why the gospel is so incredible. God's love is infinite. His mercy and His grace are unceasing. And yet we are much less comfortable with God's revelation of Himself as holy. Only a holy God, as we sang a few moments ago. Our discomfort with God as holy is also as it should be. The fact that He's holy is the reason that we are at odds with Him. God is completely set apart, totally other, supremely perfect, and we are not. We are not holy like He is. We are not as He made us to be. We can see this intersection of of the two aspects of God's character, His love and His holiness. When God reveals Himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, there's a cloud on Mount Sinai, and God speaks to Moses and says in Exodus 34, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that's often where we like to end it. But God continues, but who will by no means clear the guilty, who will visit the iniquity of the fathers, upon the children. God has determined that He will get glory both through His love and through His holiness. And that's His prerogative. It's not for me to say that He can't. God will get glory both through His mercy and through His justice, through His grace and through His wrath. And I don't like that word either. What we have to be careful to do is not to overemphasize God's love in such a way that we underemphasize God's holiness. In the same way, we must also not overemphasize the inherent goodness of human beings, the inherent sacredness, the imago Dei, in such a way that we underemphasize the seriousness of sin against the holy God. Both these things are true and they exist together. But do we also recognize the opposite is also possible, the inverse? We can also do that too. We can so emphasize God's holiness that we lose all mention of the love of God, the love of God which leads us to repentance. We can so emphasize the sinfulness, the depravity, the wretchedness of humanity that we completely miss God's heart to seek and save the lost. That too is possible. And this is where that second fleshly response to the doctrine of hell comes in. Instead of theological euphemisms which soften hell, we offer moral judgmentalism to increase hell's severity, to make it even worse than it is. This is the kind of thing you'll find in churches where the majority of sermons are on God's judgment. I hope you've never been to those places. I think that's completely inappropriate. Or perhaps it's the same kinds of thing that's happening in families where God's fear of, where the fear of God's punishment is used as the thing to keep everyone in line. There's not really joy in either of those contexts. Love doesn't exist in its full form. I think in its most extreme form, this moral judgmentalism, it's the underlying response behind posters or, or Twitter feeds with messages like, God hates fags, or Democrats go to hell. That's myopic nonsense. It's not scriptural. 
In its most extreme form, I think underneath this is the presumption that God is insatiably and irreversibly angry with the world, and his shortening fuse will burst at any moment, especially for you. You see, we don't really think about our sins, our sins, our sins, with the same severity that we want to think about everybody else's. They are sins. They really are. But so are yours. So are yours. And but for the grace of God, there go I. This second response, I think, is probably much less in vogue than it used to be. And that, I think, is due to our, our culture, where our culture is now. And that's why I'm giving it less time today, but it's still present. The truth is that this was the fleshly response in Jesus' day. Jesus spent so much time dealing with this response in the hearts of his opponents, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And Jesus' issue with them was ultimately by condemning everybody else but not themselves, they were ultimately completely missing the infinite lengths to which God's love was willing to go in order to redeem sinners just like them. And therefore, they missed the infinite joy of God whenever one sinner repents, hopefully just like them. Now that I've shared um, how our response to the doctrine of hell can go sideways, a number of ways that that's the case. Let me now share why a proper understanding of hell matters so much. It's something we can't really ignore. There are three primary ways. It matters to our salvation. It matters to our morality. And it matters to our mission. First, it matters to our salvation because hell is an integral part of our theology of salvation. To misunderstand it or to dismantle it completely will have a significant impact on the gospel we believe and proclaim. Hell is what Christ is saving us from. He's saving us to himself, but he's saving us from hell, which is a major reason for it being good news. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The revelation that each of us really does deserve hell causes us to understand just how much it is that God loves us and how great is the salvation Christ has purchased for us. There's joy there. Second, our theology of hell matters to our morality. It matters to our morality because it leads us to holiness. To holiness. Namely, hell helps us to recognize that sin and evil are what God is going to judge one day. We complain about the wickedness in the world. God's going to judge it. We should celebrate that. And so we realize just how much it's a part of us. When we are saved by the Lord Jesus, we are no longer under the threat of condemnation. And yet God is not content to just let the evil exist in your life. He wants it gone. You're justified, but the Holy Spirit is there to sanctify you, to make you more holy. Hell reminds us, as Titus chapter 2 says, a passage that we memorized during Lent, that Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, unrighteousness, and to purify us, to make us holy, 
so that we might be a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Not complacent about whether or not our lives look like Jesus or not. Zealous for good works. We don't pursue holiness out of fear. Oh no, God's going to get me if I'm not good enough. No. We pursue holiness out of thanksgiving for the love of Jesus Christ, which is the, the thing that delivered us from hell to begin with. That's why. There's a big difference there. Finally, our theology of hell matters to our mission. It matters to our mission because it drives us to zeal. To zeal, not apathy. God is not apathetic about the salvation of souls, however he's depicted by some. Neither should we be. See, hell hell helps put everything into perspective for us. When we're weighing the priorities of our lives, when we think about hell, all of a sudden we get answers to our questions. What's more important, this thing or this thing? The people around us really do need Jesus. They really do. And God really has made a way for them to be saved. And part of that way is you. It's you. If your heart breaks over the tragedy of hell's existence, and it should, then our hearts will also break when we think about the lost. We will not damn them to hell. We will love them, hopefully into the presence of God, and will zealously do so. That hell matters to our salvation and to our morality and to our mission is something which Jude, the brother of Jesus, describes well. And it's with his words in Jude that I want to close. Before I do so, I want to say that if there is something today that I've said that has really upset you, something that's just stirred up in your heart, I'm serious. I want you just to take a breath. Sit with this. Sit with the Lord. Sit with Scripture. If you are still unsettled later in the week, send me a message. We can talk. Hear the words of Jude, verses 20 to 25. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.